take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. I, um, I got a call a couple of weeks ago from my dad. Uh, many of y'all have met my dad, know my dad. My dad's retired. And uh, he's one of those guys that I never knew if retirement would fit. Because he always did stuff. He was the guy that was at the plant at 4 o'clock in the morning when he didn't have to be there till 5.15. He was there an hour and a half, 15 minutes early. He was there after he was supposed to check out because he had stuff to do. On weekends, he always did stuff. And so you always just think when you have a dad like that, that when he retires, what's he going to do? Well, he's filled his life with stuff. Some of you that have retired and wondered that question, he's filled his life with stuff. And apparently... This warm weather streak that has happened a couple of weeks ago. Y'all remember that a couple of weeks ago? It got really nice for a few days. He decided it was time to take on a project he's been threatening to take on for years. My boxes in their garage. And all of the parents said, it was time to get my stuff. That's what he said. And so he calls to give me a litany of things that are in my boxes in his garage that need to go. And we have told him, Dad, we have no room for my boxes in my garage or my house. And he says, well, they need to go somewhere besides my garage. So he starts to tell me some of the things and he gets to what I have been um, loath to give up on. My childhood dream. When I was a kid, I was into baseball cards. I had all of them. I'd buy the set for the year. I'd trade them with my friends. I would go over to their house and we would accumulate our cards. We would show them off to one another. We would build our own all-star teams with them. And I had one that was a prized possession because the rumor in the card-collecting world was that this card would be worth thousands of dollars one day. It was a special print. The first year this particular card company had ever produced cards, and this was a rookie card of a guy who would, even at that early stages, thought that it was going to be a Hall of Famer. And so for a lot of years now, I've kept a hold of my Ken Griffey Jr. Upper Deck Baseball Card. Knowing that one day my investment as an 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-year-old would pay off in thousands of dollars. When Dad called me, I wanted to check the value again because he said, I've got a guy that will buy the whole load for a hundred bucks. And I thought, I better make sure I'm not, you know, selling myself short here. Let me check on my most valuable card possession. The Ken Griffey Jr. Upper Deck Rookie Card from 1989. And what I discovered is I can now buy that card on eBay for $12.34. Sometimes our investments don't work out. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Sometimes that thing you invest your life in, you invest your time in, you invest your money in, those things that you invest in in life don't work out. 
Well, I want to talk to you today about an investment, about a trade, about a deal that you can make that is guaranteed to work out. As we continue our series marching towards Easter, you realize Easter is in two weeks. As we continue our series on the life of Jesus, I want to talk to you about making a trade. I want us to talk about giving up something small for something great. Now, my hope is that today we will be awakened again to the idea that this exchange is something worth doing. That exchanging something small for something huge is worth pursuing. That awakened to the exchange of our lives run by ourselves on our timetable with our plans is worth exchanging to be part of a grand story run by God for his glory. My prayer is that today we'll be awakened to Jesus, not some stories that we've heard about or that we think we know, but awakened to the face and the reality of a relationship with the Son of the living God. You see, I believe that one of the biggest tragedies in our world, one of the biggest tragedies in our country, and my guess is one of the biggest tragedies in your life, is the number of times we have exchanged something big for something small. We've exchanged living for the glory of God as a part of His plan for something that we think brings us comfort and joy in the here and now. The biggest tragedy of your life is to live your life, even as a believer, still under the impression that you are in control and that you can set your destiny and the things that you enjoy are of utmost importance. Instead of trusting and following and living with radical abandonment to the cause of Christ. As we're walking through this series on the life of Jesus, we've looked at his temptation and we looked at his baptism. We looked at the calling of the disciples. We looked when Chris Phillips was here about his call to purpose and seeking and saving the lost. Last week, we talked about his teaching ministry overall and particularly the uh, parable, the one or two sentences that encapsulates all of his teaching when he says that the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure in a field. And he reburies it and he goes back and he sells everything he has to go buy the field. And that's part of the pattern that Jesus used throughout his ministry. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4 verse 23, it says that Jesus began. This is the beginning of his ministry and this is what he does throughout his ministry. Go all over Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And as we began to think about, as we began to talk about, as I began to plan out how we would encapsulate the life of Jesus in just a few sermons, I knew that I couldn't leave out his teaching because that's a vital aspect of what he was, what he did, who he is as Jesus the Messiah in the New Testament. But I also realized we couldn't leave out the miracles. The miracles that Jesus would use to show off the power of God, but not just in a showy way, in order to give credence to who he is so that his teaching could be heard and understood and followed. And today what I want to do is I want to look at one of those stories of healing that comes in John chapter 11. John 
chapter 11. Now, let me just tell you something. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. That's okay, right? Right. If we're going to read lots of scripture today, because this story takes place over lots of verses and you have to get the whole story to understand the punchline. Right. This is not I don't mean punchline as in a joke. I mean, punchline as in the conclusion, as in the big reveal. It's one of those that has a slow build when it comes to the scripture. Now, and honestly, it's not a long story. Long stories are novels. This is just simply 30 to 40 verses of Scripture. But in it, the building of it, the tension that comes, leads us to a place of understanding. John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now, a man was sick. Lazarus from Bethany. The village of Mary and her sister, Martha. I just want to say something real quickly. A lot of times in scripture, when it tells us these stories, it doesn't always give us the names of the participants other than Jesus and the disciples. And when chapter 11 starts and the story begins by telling you the names of these three people, it is it is giving you a clue that these are three important people, not only in this story, but in the life of Jesus and in the New Testament. Verse 2 tells us who Mary is. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with hair. By the way, that story's coming in just a minute. And it was her brother, Lazarus, who was sick. Now, this family shows up in Scripture several times, right? You have the story here. You have the story of her anointing the feet and washing the feet with his hair. You have the story of visiting in their home. And you know that story, right? The Mary and Martha story that Martha is doing what? Working, cleaning the house, cooking the food. And what's Mary doing? Nothing. Right? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, taking in the story of Jesus. It's the parable of Lazarus and the rich men. So this family is in Scripture. And from all that we can tell, this is one of the most important families in Scripture when it comes to their relationship with Jesus. And Lazarus is sick. Now, if you're one of the people that has followed Jesus closely for his entire ministry, or at least a large section of it, if you're one of the people that Jesus has been in your home, which means probably when he was in Bethany, that is where they stayed. That is where Jesus stayed. They had opened their home to him. They had given him a place of refuge. They had given him a place of shelter. They had given him a place to stay. When that is who you are, when you are a family that is close to Jesus, and you have seen him teach and teach and heal and heal, and your brother, whom he loves, falls sick, the natural response is, somebody what? Go get Jesus. That's what they do. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. We, We gloss over some aspects of this story, and I want you today, as we talk through it, to To really engage with it in a new way. And I mean that, like, let's look at the details a little bit. What is said, what is happening. Oftentimes what happens is a story that we've heard over and over again, that we saw from the first time on a flannel graph board when we were kids, and has been part of our lives ever since, we sometimes become numb to the realities of what's happening here. When it says Lazarus was sick, we cannot assume that it was a simple head cold. Right? 
Now, we, what happens to Lazarus? You know this part of the story. What happens to Lazarus? He dies. So this isn't like, oh, I got a little cold today. Or I got a little cough. By the time they send for Jesus, my guess is Lazarus was in terrible shape, was at the point of death already. And in that day and time, from all that we know, it would have been a gruesome sight to be around him. Because someone that was relatively young, dying at this age, probably meant there was multiple things happening. You can imagine the sisters sitting at his bedside while he is laid up. Coughing, hacking, gasping for life. And just saying, it'll be okay. Jesus is coming. It'll be all right. We we, we sent for Jesus, Lazarus. Just hold on. Come on, just hold on. Just hold on. Jesus will be here. When Jesus gets here, everything will be okay. It comes to verse 4. When Jesus heard it, so the message gets there. He said... The sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is where the story takes an interesting turn, an interesting twist. Let me just tell you, if you've got one of those Bibles that the words of Jesus are in red, when the words turn red is often when the story goes differently than you expect. And when they get to Jesus, a normal person would think Jesus would say, listen, I got time or I'll be there as soon as I can. Let them know I got to finish up this one thing and I'll be there. Jesus hears it and goes, it's okay. He's not going to die. It'll be all right. And then he says this strange kind of statement. My friend Lazarus, who I love, who I care about, is sick, deathly ill, at the point of death, perhaps even in the midst of dying at this moment. For the glory of God. That's what it says, right? This is happening so that God's glory will be revealed. Jesus has a messenger come. His apostles are gathered around him. His disciples and their crowns are around. He comes up and says, Lazarus, the one that you love is sick. He's about to die, Jesus. They need you. And Jesus says, he's okay. He goes, and by the way, what's happening to him? This strange illness, this terrible illness, this death illness. Is because something bigger is going on than you can see. I know him. I love him. But there's something bigger going on. Can I tell you something about your life? There is always something bigger in play than you see at the moment. We talked about this in the call of the disciples. Remember when he says cast the net? You remember that a few weeks ago? He says, go back out, cast the nets. And that Peter had no idea. James and John, no idea. Andrew, no idea that in that moment, what hung in the balance of a decision to obey. They had no idea that when Jesus says to them, cast your net, that they would catch a haul of fish that would lead them to follow him as Messiah, that would lead them on this three-year journey where they would see him heal and teach, but that would see him culminate in his death, resurrection, and their own sending to the nations. I wonder if Peter ever sat in those last moments of his life when he was going to be killed for his faith in Jesus and thought about The decision at the moment he cast the net over the side of the boat. The truth is, whether we realize it or not, 
Our lives are lived in the midst of a global and universal war that is waging between the forces of God and the enemy. And we know that the enemy will lose and that God will win. But we fail to recognize our daily lives and how we live as a part of this play, this war that is going on that is bigger than anything we can imagine. They come to him and say, Lazarus is dead or almost dead. He's sick. And Jesus said, he's not going to die. And anyways, this is part of a bigger plan, part of a grander purpose. Verse 5 is one of those verses we often skip over, and yet it is vitally important to this story. It says, now Jesus loved Martha, her sister Mary, and Lazarus. That seems almost like a throwaway thing in the midst of it. Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. And then it says in the next verse, so when he heard this, that he was sick. Now, if we were reading the Bible for the first time, we did not know what was coming. Most of us would expect the next phrase to be, he went as fast as he could to their side to help them out. Right? But that's not what he says. It says because he loved them, he stayed. Two more days in the place that he was. He didn't even start the journey for two days. He didn't begin the journey two days. And it says it's because he loved them. Sometimes in our lives, we cannot glimpse or see how God is working behind the scenes. And when we call God to relieve us or make it easier or help us, what we fail to recognize is the bigger things that in play, God is showing us his love by waiting. So he waits for two more days in the place where he was. Now, the disciples aren't upset about that. We'll see that in just a second. It says, then after that, he said to the disciples, okay, let's go back to Judea. And instead of the disciples goes, man, that's awesome. We love Lazarus. We love Mary. We love Martha. We're glad we're going to go help him. Thank you. know, this is awesome. Glad we're doing that. Look at the response of the disciples in the next verse. Rabbi, they said, teacher. <laughs> we were just there. I don't know if you remember this, Jesus. Maybe you've, you've gets gotten foggy and your concern for your friend has kind of wiped us away. But we were just there and uh, they tried to kill you. And we're going back. Like, Jesus, don't you realize what's happening here? You're like, you were there, they tried to kill you, and you want to go back. Now, we give the disciples a hard time sometimes. But what's happening here is exactly what you and I would think. Like, Jesus, we almost died. We're good here. Nobody's trying to kill us here. Let's just stay here for a minute. Jesus gives a cryptic answer in verse 9. Aren't there 12 hours in a day, Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. What he says is, you're going to be okay because you're with me. Verse 11, he said this and then he told them. This is one of my favorite lines in this passage. There are lots of great one-liners in this passage, but I love this one. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go wake him up. He's just gone to sleep. I'm going to go wake him up. Let me ask you a question. How many of you here are hard sleepers? See those hands, all right? How many of you here are morning people? I just want to know so we can hate on you. Okay, thank you. Good to see that. How many of you here are people that set more than one alarm? See that, all right? 
<laughs> Danny, you don't need more than one. Amy, you do. All right. Is Danny one of your alarms? That's my question here. How many of you have to put the alarm across the room? Anybody have to do that? Anybody here should do that. Put the alarm across the room. Right? Do you know they're making an alarm now that will not go off until your feet touch the floor? That is cruel and unusual punishment is what that is, right? When I was in kindergarten, do you remember kindergarten that used to let you nap? Ava's, not in, I mean, Ava's in kindergarten, they don't let them nap anymore. They make them do like work all day long. It's just hard on those babies, all right? When I was in kindergarten, you got to nap for like five hours or something. Like it was just, you go play for two hours, you nap, you play, eat lunch, you nap, right? But I remember in kindergarten, any crazy things that you remember about like things that have been a long time ago? And I know y'all think I'm young, but that's been um, 37 years ago now. It's a long time. It's crazy what you remember about kindergarten. In kindergarten, we had a, a kid, um, and I don't think he'll watch this, so it'll be okay. Um, his name was Mike Jones. Mike Jones was the hardest sleeper I've ever met in my life. And we would lay down for naps on our mats, you know, those very comfortable mats that are, you know, like pencil thin. And we would sleep, and we didn't have pillows or blankets. We didn't have any of that. It was just... Lay down on your mat and sleep. And Mike would go to sleep so hard that Miss McCulley, my kindergarten teacher, would literally try to shake him awake every day. And everybody in the class is up. The lights are on. We're walking around him. She's shaking him. And there would come a point when a couple of times in the year when Miss McCulley would say, go get me the water. Now, I don't even know if they would allow that these days. And I hope Miss McCulley's still not teaching and gets her in trouble. But she would bring, somebody would bring her a glass of water and she would throw it on his face. It's the only way you could wake him up. He was so deep asleep. I love how Jesus just kind of makes this casual reference. Lazarus is asleep. And I'm going to go wake him up. I don't want to do too much kind of uh, allegory here of making this comparison too much. But I will say this. That I'm convinced that today there are many of us in this room, many of you in this room, who spiritually are asleep. I don't mean dead. I don't want to take it that far. Because many of you are believers in Jesus Christ. But even as believers, we can be lulled into a sense of comfort and security that makes us think that we are living the life that we are supposed to live for the glory of God. And yet we are sleepwalking around. And Jesus says, I'm going to go wake him up. One of my prayers is that as a church, that as a people... That you and I would not be satisfied with remaining in the groggy state of sleep. When it comes to understanding our place in the grand scheme of life. That we wouldn't be lulled to sleep by the comfort and security of a house. That makes us feel as if we're safe at night. In a country that is the most blessed country in the history of the world. Financially, economically, materialistically. That we would not be lulled into a sense of accomplishment and sleep because we are a people who seem to have figured life out. 
that have made life easy for ourselves. That we might be lulled into a sense of comfort and security because for the most part, compared to the people around us, we're pretty good at this thing. We can make people think that we know what we're doing and when it comes to our faith even. That we would not be lulled into sleep because we are people who have settled for something less than what God intends. Now here's the thing. Nobody in the world could wake Lazarus up from the sleep he was in except for Jesus. I can't wake you up from a spiritual slumber. From a spiritual sleepwalking. I cannot do that. I can't throw water in your face or shake your shoulders and wake you up. The only way you are awakened from a spiritual slumber is to have an encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And some of you in this room have not encountered Jesus. I'm not talking about the stories of Jesus. I'm not talking about the Bible reading that you do. I'm talking about encountering the risen Savior. Some of you have not done that in years. And as a result, your spiritual life has become dormant and you are sleepwalking through. Some of you in this room may have never had that experience with Jesus Christ. You have never come to a saving knowledge of who he is in your life. And I will tell you today that if that is you in this room, you are not walking around in a spiritual slumber. You are dead in sin. And there is only one way to be awakened from that death. And it is Jesus. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever in this room, perhaps the prayer that you could pray that would make you realize what is happening in your life is simply Jesus, wake me up. Verse 12. Again, we give the disciples a hard time, but Jesus is talking in strange terms here. I mean, think about what's happened. Somebody came and said, hey, your friend's really sick. And he's like, all right. Let's go. Why are we going, Jesus? Well, he's asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. Jesus, if he's sick and he's sleeping, he probably needs to stay sleeping. Like, it's okay. He's just asleep. The disciples said, Lord, if he's falling asleep, he'll get well. He'll be fine. We, we don't have, really, we don't have to go. And Jesus, however, was speaking about his death. See, they're not worried about him dying because Jesus said what? This isn't going to end in death. And so in their mind, he can't die. Jesus said he's not going to die. We've never seen Jesus say something that didn't come true. And so when Jesus says he's asleep, they're thinking, well, he can't be dead because Jesus said he wouldn't die. Now, that's not what Jesus said, right? He said it wouldn't end in death. So then Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, listen, guys, he's died. And then he says this strange thing again, all right? Remember, when the words in red start, sometimes they're different than what we expect. He says, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there when he died. So that you may believe, but let's go find him. Then Thomas, if you have an old version, it says called Didymus, which I would have just preferred Thomas, if you ask me. Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let's go too so that we may die with him. Now, this is where I really wish the tone in which Thomas said that would let us know how he said it. I wish there was a sarcasm font or an excited font. Because there are two ways to take this. One is the Braveheart way, the let's go and die with our Savior. 
Come on, boys, let's go. Charging out of the locker room at halftime. Let's take on the world. I don't think that's how he said it. This is Thomas, after all, right? Thomas had to see what? The, it's John that tells us that Thomas doubted. I think what's happening here is this is a sarcastic response from Thomas. Now, how do I know that? I don't. But I'm pretty good at sarcasm, and this sounds sarcastic to me. I think if sarcasm was a spiritual gift, it might be one of mine, all right? That was sarcastic, anyways. All right? And so Thomas says, come on, guys, let's go. Might as well go. Let's go die, too. They were worried, right? They just tried to kill him. He said, let's go back. It's the craziest. You want to see Thomas back there? Go, it's the craziest thing we've ever done. We're trying to stay alive here, Jesus. And you want to go back to a friend that's sleeping? And now he's dead? What are you going to do with that? You said he wasn't going to die. He died. Now we're going to go back where he almost got killed so that we can die, too. Let's just go get killed. Verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Now, that's significant. You may remember this. We've talked about this a couple of times. But in Jewish belief, they believed that the spirit of the human hovered around the body. I'm not saying this is actual biblical understanding. I'm saying Jewish tradition. That the spirit of the body hung around the body for three days and then left. And so after three days, he is, I heard stone cold dead is what I heard back there, right? He's dead, dead. In fact, one of the descriptions in this passage in the original is he is dead, dead. He's done. He had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them about their brother. Most people think this is real close to the Passover. In fact, just a couple of uh, chapters later, this, this uh, Passover is going to happen. The triumphal entry is the next chapter. This is close to the ending of Jesus' life. This incident will be the incident that leads people to think that Jesus should be killed in some ways. There's a large crowd there. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, Martha, the one that always took action, Martha, the one that was always working, Martha, the one that was always ready to do something, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. In the book of John, there are multiple declarations of ego I me. I am. And it is the statements that Jesus uses to proclaim his divinity to the people around him. And in this moment, when she has talked about the fact that the resurrection will come on the last day, Jesus says, I am here and I am present and I am bringing the reality of what you hope for to bear on this moment in this day at this time. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus.
she said, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. She still doesn't get what he's saying, and we'll find that out in just a minute. Verse 28. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. Mary, as soon as she heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw that Mary got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to cry. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him. Do you think they've discussed this line with each other around the house? Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Martha sees Jesus. The first thing she says is, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Mary sees Jesus. The first thing she says to him, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked the Lord. They told him, come and see. And verse 35 is the favorite verse of scripture memorization. People everywhere. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? I think the scene is interesting when he gets there. And so this, this story has been building to this moment and he arrives and Martha runs out to meet him. He, he, she hears that Jesus is on his way. He's finally come and she falls at his feet. And she doesn't know if he's been delayed. She's not sure why he's not there. But she comes and falls at his feet and says, Jesus, if you could have made it in time, he would have been here. And then it seems like she gives an affirmation of faith and says, and whatever you want to ask of God right now, God will do. But we know she doesn't really believe he can raise Lazarus from the dead because two or three times after that, she kind of gives the impression that I know it's going to come someday, but not now. You see the people standing around. You have people that don't believe. You have people that are afraid. You have people that are in sorrow. You have people that are skeptical. You have people that are hopeless. You have people who are even hostile. And in the midst of this, Jesus says, I've come for this moment to invade you here and now. Verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said, and Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he's been dead four days. Now, I don't know how you take that particular verse in your reading of Scripture, but my reading of Scripture is that is the point of complete exasperation. Now, if you want to have a, some of you still have a King James Version. My favorite word in the, in the King James Version is in this verse. It says, Lord, he stinketh. I know what stinketh is. I have two, I have one teenage and one close to teenage boy. Martha says, it's too late. That's what she says, right? It's too late. If you would have been here when he, before, you could have saved him. Jesus, even if you'd have been here like the day after, I might have thought something could happen because the Spirit's still having his body. It's been four days. 
He started to decompose. Nobody wants to open that. Jesus, come on, just let us have, just whatever you're going to do. Can you just do it outside the stone? Can you just do it out here? Why do you need it open? It's going to stink. It's going to knock everybody back. It's going to do nobody any good, Jesus, because it is too far gone. You know, those are words that don't have any meaning to Jesus, right? Too far gone are words that don't have any meaning to Jesus. Aren't you glad about that? There are people all around us that think and are convinced that they can't change, that God can really move in their lives. And Jesus says, roll away the stone. Jesus is violating all kinds of medical, spiritual, ritualistic Jewish laws by telling them to open the stone. You weren't supposed to go near a dear body. Once it was already wrapped up, you were supposed to steer clear. And yet Jesus says, roll away the stone. Jesus just says to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God again? I told you this was part of a bigger plan. I told you this is something grander. There's something bigger going on. I know in the moment it feels like your world has been crushed and you don't understand it. But there is something greater happening here. When you get to the end of the story. So they remove the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I've said this so that they may believe you sent me. Now, Jesus doesn't pray like this at all in other parts of the scripture. He just prays and people overhear. But here he specifically says a prayer out loud for people to hear. Part of that is because what he is about to do is so amazing, so unbelievable. He wants to get it straight that it is the power that God has given him and that God is on him. This is not some witchcraft or sorcery. This is the power of God working through him. After he said that, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Did that wake you up there? That's what it says, right? Read the scripture. Does it say he whispered, Lazarus, come forth? No, it says he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And then just there are great one lines in this story. The dead man came out. That's impossible. Right? The dead man walked. Do you know what dead men don't do? Walk. You know what dead men don't do? Come out of the grave. That doesn't happen. No matter how cute you think zombies are, they don't happen. Except for the power of God here. He's not a zombie, he's alive. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in cloth. And I love that Jesus is the one that has to say, come on now, let's, let's get him unwrapped. Right? Now, I don't know what's happening with the rest of them, but my guess is they're standing there with their face just absolutely in shock. Mary and Martha are like, I, I don't, what, uh, what, go and wrap him. Let, let the man breathe. He can't walk. It says his feet and hands are what? Bound. I don't know if you think about this. They didn't just, you know, gently put some toilet paper around him. All right. These were sturdy claws that they wrapped him tightly in. And he is like, I imagine like a potato sack race coming out there. And Jesus says, unwrap him and let him go. Here's what I want to tell you today. And I want to talk about a couple of ways that we can respond. God intends for us to live a life 
that is beyond belief. And when I say that, one of the first things that our American minds imagine is that you're talking about the prosperity, that you're talking about stuff, that you're talking about security, that you're talking about safety. And yet if you look at the lives of those people that most closely follow Jesus, what you discover is that is never guaranteed in the process. And yet... Those people that live for the glory of God, even when it takes them into their death, do not regret what they have done. Because they realize there's a bigger story in play. On Wednesday night, we're walking similarly through the life of Jesus on Wednesday night. And Wednesday night, um, I told the story of the missionaries that went to the remote Indian tribe. Jim Elliott, Steve Saint, those missionaries that went and they went and made contact first contact went well everything was all right the second contact did not the second contact they were killed and bodies disposed of by those indians the alkan indians years later it was revealed by one of the sons by the saint son that all four of those men were armed that day. They carried guns that were loaded in their pocket. And they said that they had made a pact, however, in the moments before going to see them, that his dad had written in his journal that we have made a pact that none of us will fire upon them if trouble begins. They took their gun for protection in the jungle, like from wild animals and those kind of things. But he said, we will not fire upon those men. And this is the reasoning he gave. He said, because we realize that if they shoot us, we have an eternity in heaven. And if we shoot them, they have an eternity in hell. There is something bigger at play here. Now, if you know the rest of that story, the wives and the children went back to that village The head of the village became a believer and the entire tribe started to follow Jesus. You see, we've become too accustomed to think our lives have to be perfect in order to glorify God. And yet God often uses the biggest tragedies and most difficult moments to glorify him. Can you think of a bigger tragedy for this family than their brother, who was the only one that we can tell from Scripture was able to provide for them dying? And yet Jesus used it to bring glory to his name. So what do we do? We do what they did. You see, chapter 12 continues the story. This I don't think is up on the screen, but it's in your Bible. If you've got it open, it's the next chapter over. And we'll just, we're going to look at it real briefly. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. I love this, that John tells us this as if we hadn't just read the story. Right? So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them and Lazarus was one reclining at the table. Then Mary. So all three of them are there because this is what happens. When somebody raises your brother from the dead, you throw a party. And you invite Jesus that did it to the party and you get all your friends there. Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. 
two things there that you need to understand. The gift that was given was extravagant and would have been considered reckless. Secondly, we talk about this when we get to the Corinthian passage about women letting their hair down. In that society, women did not let their hair down. It was considered indecent. But in this moment, Mary doesn't care. Because Jesus raised her brother from the dead. And you know the story. One of the disciples particularly complains about how much they could have gotten for the perfume. If you were just given the perfume to Jesus. And Jesus says, you don't understand. This is just an overflow of her joy. And so when we come face to face with the reality of who Jesus is. As they did in this particular raising of Lazarus from the dead. The only response we can have is simply to worship him. Worship him. That's what Mary did. She poured the perfume. She washed with her feet. She was adoring Jesus, lifting out Jesus, giving honor to Jesus. Then it says in verse 9, this is the second thing. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. Like, y'all hear Lazarus was dead? He's alive. Let's go find out. He became a sideshow attraction. Verse 10, but the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. The first thing that we do in response to the miraculous, holy, unbelievable Jesus is we worship him. The second thing we do is we tell others about him. We know from this story that Lazarus became a mouthpiece using the experience of what happened in his life to point people from Jesus and people were believing. And here's the last thing, and this is what I'll leave you with today. We are willing to exchange our lives for something greater. I was having a conversation the other day with a dad who has kids around our age and he just said something just kind of passing that said, man, they're growing up. They're getting big. It's one of those statements that you say as parents, right? Man, they're getting so big. Man, they're growing up. But I've just had two or three things in my life recently that let me know, yeah, they are. Like, my time is short. And I begin in those moments to think about my primary purpose as a parent. And I know what society tells me my primary purpose is, and that's to raise good kids who get good grades and go to a good school and get a good job so they can have a good family, so that they can have good kids, so they can raise to have, uh, be good kids, that they will get good grades, that will get a good college, that will get a good job, right? It's this cycle. And yet, that seems so small in comparison with raising kids they're going to be on fire living for the glory of God, no matter what that means. My primary purpose in life is not to raise good kids. It's not. And as a pastor, sometimes that's hard because everybody talks about pastor's kids. I don't know. I like that. Amen there. <laughs> may need to have some discussions afterwards. But my goal in life is to raise kids that are passionately devoted to following Jesus no matter what. 
And my prayer is that we are a church that is dedicated to raising a next generation that is passionately devoted to living out the bigger picture for God no matter what, even if those decisions don't always make sense to our comfortable American lifestyle. But you know what has to happen in order for that to happen? Is that you and I have to live passionately devoted lives to following Jesus Christ and making decisions that always don't make sense to the normal American lifestyle. Because if it's not real to you, it won't matter to them. And that's true for your grandkids. That's true for your kids. That's true for your family. So my question is, are you awake? Are you in a deep sleep and need Jesus to yell, get up? I can't do it. My job is to lead you to that point. But Jesus is the one that awakens. Jesus is the one that changes. The Holy Spirit is the one that convicts and challenges and moves you forward. And you can sit here and listen to these sermons for the rest of your life and never change. And you will have had a tragic ending because you did not exchange the simple life of today for the glorious life of living for Jesus. So my question is, are you awake? Let's pray together.